From X-City Magazine, I'm Dylan Thompson, and this is Behind the Byline, the podcast where we do a deep dive into what makes a story work, speaking to journalists about some of their most remarkable reporting to find out exactly how each piece came together. Today's guests are Sarah Afshar and Nicola Kutcher. The documentarians behind Series Disappeared, a film that chronicles the thousands of individuals who have been sent to secret detention centers under the rule of President Bashar al-Assad. Working in 10 countries for nearly three years, Afshar and Kutcher went to great lengths to expose the horrible conditions found in these prisons. I'm Sarah Afshar. Um, I'm a journalist and documentary filmmaker, and I was the director and producer of Series Disappeared. I'm Nicola Kutcher. I'm a freelance investigative journalist and I was the co-producer of Series Disappeared. So where did the idea to look into these disappearances in Syria first come from for you guys? So in January 2014, I first saw a selection of the Caesar photographs um, when they were released to The Guardian um, and CNN. And I was really shocked by them. I just thought that the images were reminiscent of images we'd seen from the Holocaust, you know, severely emaciated corpses. Um, And, you know, it was reported that these were corpses of people who died in detention and had been tortured. And of course, you know, when I first saw them, I was just thought, can these be real? Why would the regime take these photographs? Um, You know, it's crazy. Um, and so I started looking into it and um, I realised that they were real and then I thought well I thought that they would have a profound impact on the conflict at the time in Syria I just thought these images are so shocking they can't just be swept under the carpet and you know as a filmmaker I was being asked to make films about ISIS and of course people should make films about ISIS and some excellent films were made but by the autumn of that year, I just felt that nothing was being done on this issue. I mainly just thought it was really underreported, and that's why I, I wanted to investigate it. So I kind of started looking into it independently. And then, um, you know, as I progressed, then Nicola came on, on board with me. So once you decide, you know, sort of, okay, we're doing this, we're making this, um, what, what's kind of the first step in actually telling that story? Where, where did you guys kind of go to first when you decided you were going to make this? So basically, I first started contacting the people who had the photographs because I actually wanted to go and see them for myself. You know, so I was looking for survivors and for families of the people um, who had died in the photographs. Um, and I also spoke started speaking to prosecutors and I mean that's the thing kind of quite early on I spoke to Ambassador Stephen Rapp and to the team at the Commission for International Justice and Accountability so I kind of established those relationships really early on even though we didn't actually film with them for quite a long time you know obviously we wanted to gather as much evidence as as possible um and then we started filming at the beginning of 2016. Yeah, and then when I came on, because Sarah had already done so much work with the photographs, I started just researching detention in general, really. So it was about trying to understand the system, but also interviewing as many Syrians as possible who had survived and come out. And 
obviously trying to compare their accounts so journalistically you're thinking am I hearing the same thing from people in different countries because we're now dealing with people that are refugees across Europe or in America or in you know other Middle Eastern countries and we were having these I was interviewing lots of people via Skype with interpreters and you're thinking these people don't know each other if they're in the same facility and they're giving me the same account of a cell then that's obviously adding credibility to the case so you're building a picture all the time of whether how it works and how credible people are and also looking for people that might eventually become your protagonists for a documentary. Yeah, and I mean, just with, I mean, once you guys have sort of collected all of that background and you've been speaking with all these people and, and seeing these photographs and you actually moved to filming, I mean, it seems as though the, the sort of the scope of the filming itself was kind of so large as well. I mean, you, know, you said you guys went to 10 different countries. Um, can, you, can you sort of talk about that, you know, how long it took, you know, how much travel was kind of involved in the actual process of putting this together? So we basically started filming properly at the beginning of 2016 and we were still filming going into 2017 because some things were happening you know as we were in the edit mm -hmm. like for instance the Spanish case the case that was filed in Spain against the Syrian regime you know I was waiting for that to happen you know in October 2016 and it kept being put back and it actually ended up happening in February 2017 and you know our film was broadcast in March so oh wow yeah but for instance you know when I went on that first trip when I met quite a few survivors I still kind of knew that I wanted to meet more survivors and it was when I met Mazen Alhamada that I definitely knew I wanted to film with him because he he was released um, in the autumn of 2013 and he gave his testimony to the Violations Documentation Centre um, then, and you know, in, in, in autumn 2013. Um, but also, like, from a human point of view, you know, it's very difficult for people to talk about these things that have happened to them in detention. Um, and Mazen was really willing to open up and to just really, like, bear himself um, in those interviews. So really, kind of our filming started with spending a lot of time with Mazin, and we, we spent time with him before we even started the filming, and we kind of, we went back frequently. He was in Europe, um, and kind of, you know, followed him around and what was going on with him um, for quite a while, so we got to know him well. What would you guys say was was kind of the biggest challenge you had to overcome when you were making this piece? Because, I mean, it sounds like just putting all this together is, you know, a lot in terms of kind of the logistical end of it. Yeah, I mean, there was a structural challenge, wasn't there, in terms of how you tell a film like this? Because we had the legal elements and you're trying to present the evidential case, but we also really wanted it to be a human film that connects with people emotionally because the photos are so distancing. Like, you look at the photos and, as Sarah says, they're reminiscent of the Holocaust, and they're so shocking that they're very alienating. It's actually very difficult to see the human being. It's very hard to imagine yourself in that position. And so it was key to us that we found people that the audience would connect with that would then bring the photos to life. Because researching it, the most moving thing was when you saw a picture of... Because we were scanning through these photos of dead people a lot. And that was, in itself, is quite traumatic to look constantly at images of dead people. But then when you see the picture of them alive and dead and you know it's a positive identification and you've spoken to the family member, it really has a whole new resonance. And that was very emotional researching it, but so many families can't tell that story publicly. 
which was a big challenge because you'd hear these incredible accounts, but the person couldn't go on camera and show their face because they still had family members in Syria. So even if they were out and they were safe, they'd say, I can't tell this story because they might round up my brother or they might round up my uncle or my son, and they'll be punished and they'll go into this system. And that was a real... We obviously took those risks to people really seriously. What, you know, one thing that was a real challenge was actually just, you know, getting it made, you know, actually getting, you know, um, it commissioned. Um, you know, we filmed about 60% of it without having, you know, a deal on the table. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the thing. We were just, it was a massive leap of faith, really. Yeah, because um, we were just working on it. Yeah. Unpaid, obviously, at that point, yeah. and Sarah was covering travel expenses, yeah. and we were hope and because we believed it was a really important story, we thought if we can capture this footage and show it to people, we have yeah. faith that then mm-hmm. someone will commission it. But yeah. it was really hard. <laughs> it was yeah. hard, and I mean, and then originally we were trying to make it so that it would be a feature-length documentary, you know, ninety minutes, and we were kind of filming it in that way, um, and so you know. When we, we approached Channel 4, you know, once we'd done about 60% of the filming, and then they were really enthusiastic um, and commissioned it. Um, but then obviously it meant that, you know, we had to make a 50-minute film that has, like, advert breaks. Yeah, because before you'd been just making it to make it, and you didn't know that it would have to be like that. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we had quite a lot of views about, you know, the way we had hoped it would be. Um, you know, so that's really tough, especially because, you know, essentially, you know, Mazen's story, Mariam's story, Mansour's story, they could be a film in their own right, you know, you know, there's so many aspects to their stories, um, and then you're just trying to condense all of that into a shorter format, and, as Nicola said, trying to weave you know, the evidential aspects and the legal aspects. So that was, you know, it was, that was a massive challenge, you know, what, what would end up being left out. So, you know, obviously that's really like, I found, I found that one of the hardest things just constantly. And I still do. I still like wake up in the morning and think about bits that <laughs> like weren't Like if we put that in or something. Yeah, yeah. of course, because... Well, no, just because there were just so many kind of good things to put in. Yeah, the difficulty was how much we put into the final film. And so now that the film's finally come out, though, and you've gotten, you know, sort of this, you know, fantastic response from, you know, places like The Guardian and The Times, and what has that kind of been like, you know, getting this recognition after putting in, you know, three years of work on this one documentary? Yeah, we both we were talking about this earlier. We've got mixed feelings. Obviously, we're delighted that the film's been it's already won some awards. It got the British Journalism Award for Investigation of the Year, and it won it's you know it's been nominated for other awards. But meanwhile, people are still in detention. Nothing has changed for detainees in Syria. Families whose loved ones are detained still don't know where they're being held or whether they're alive or dead. Monitors still haven't been allowed into these facilities. So there's been no political change since the film. And so it feels very strange going to these award ceremonies and being recognised for the film while knowing that all of the Syrians in our film live in the same hell that they were living in when we were filming with them. Because actually this issue could be dealt with 
you know, right now, <clears throat> even without, you know, a peace agreement um, in Syria, this issue could be dealt with. You know, why aren't people allowed to go into these facilities, um, you know, independent monitors? Why aren't the families allowed to have information about what's happened to their loved ones? Um, so, you know, it is frustrating on, on that level. Um, but, you know, all we, all we can do is carry on showing the film. And actually, even though I was frustrated that the film wasn't feature length, the fact that it's 50 minutes makes it quite accessible <clears throat> to, you know, having public screenings and then having a discussion afterwards, um, which is what kind of happens at these screenings. And, you know, um, at most of the screenings, there'll always be a Syrian there on the platform who then is able to talk about the issues, which is, you know, definitely useful um, when there are, you know, Syrian refugees in Europe and then they're actually able to talk to their host community about what they've been through. Because I think a lot of people don't realise that, you know, a lot of Syrian refugees have been tortured for a lot of you know a lot of the Syrians themselves won't talk about it unless really they're specifically asked about it um, so you know I've been kind of heartened that refugee groups um, in Europe have, have shown the film um, but I agree you know what we need um, is action um, because yeah while we're having this conversation there are people in these detention facilities and in, in these places that we know are horrific that there's incontrovertible evidence that they are horrific and everybody knows about it. You've been listening to Behind the Byline. Make sure to tune in next week for more insights about how it takes a great journalist to make a great story. I've been Dylan Thompson, and thanks for listening.